my first changeover was with Kenny Everett. I was doing a Saturday afternoon show, my very first show, and I had to walk around the block four times before I could summon up the courage to walk in. I said, uh, he said, what's your name? I said, Nicky Campbell said, don't be too good or I shall have you grotted and dragged down Euston Road. <laughs> this week on Walking the Dog, I chatted to radio and TV presenter Nicky Campbell, who was joined by his Labrador Maxwell and his two Westies, Maisie and Misty. Oh, and there's a cameo appearance from his wife, Tina, who wanted to know why Nicky hadn't picked up the dog poo. We chatted about everything, because it turns out Nicky's incredibly open. He told me about being adopted and the impact that's had on his life, what it was like meeting his birth mother, and the extraordinary bond he formed with his childhood dog, Candy. We also talked about his hugely successful career and meeting his wife, Tina, and what it felt like to have been finally diagnosed with bipolar as an adult as well as the Labrador Maxwell, who became an invaluable support to him during that time. In fact, Nikki has just written a book called One of the Family, Why a Dog Called Maxwell Changed My Life. And it's so moving and beautifully written. I really urge you to read it as I was quite blown away by it. I was also just quite blown away by Nikki. I'd obviously been familiar with his work, but I had no idea what he'd been through. And I was really impressed by his honesty and insight and just his wisdom. He also seems like a real laugh. Basically, what I'm saying is I think I might have to move in with the Campbells. Look, Ray and I are very petite. We don't take up much room, although Ray will need his bedding to be Egyptian cotton. That's the only thing to bear in mind, just FYI. Before I go, do also check out Nikki's podcast, One of the Family, where he chats to people about the ways in which dogs make the world a better place. So that's obviously very up my straza. Do give it a listen. I'll shut up now and hand over to the man himself. Here's Nikki. And Maisie, and Misty, and Maxwell. You fed the dog, Nikki. I fed a dog. I've got my dog on my lap, Raymond. Raymond. Mm-hmm. Say hello, Raymond, to Nikki Campbell. Hi, Raymond. Does Raymond watch television? Yes, he does. Yeah. Do your dogs? Does, um, Maxwell doesn't. Maxwell isn't remotely interested in television, but. Misty, the mother West Highland Terrier, is an avid fan of any nature program or vet program or program with animals or dogs or indeed adverts in which animals appear. Uh, Misty is somewhat, sorry, Maisie, her daughter, is somewhat flummoxed by it. I think she can see it, but she doesn't get as excited as Misty does. Misty does, uh, Misty attacks the television, literally. (laughs) And you see, my dog likes David Attenborough. I think he mm. finds his voice very soothing and he likes dogs behaving very badly on Channel 5 because I think he likes to feel smug when other dogs are being told off and he hears, no. <laughs> <laughs> Misty Go enjoys on. Noel Fitzpatrick, the vet thing, because she, I think she likes seeing other dogs suffering. <laughs> she's, like, she's a very twisted individual. <laughs> Nikki, I'm so thrilled that you're able to join me on Walking the Dog. And I'm so sad that I can't meet you in person. I know. I I was looking for my book, sorry. I know, it would have been great to go for a stroll and look at the weather here in London town today. It's sunshine and it's spring. There's a a breath of spring in the air, isn't there? I can can see the times where we'll be sitting in the garden drinking Sauvignon. It's not long, is it? It's coming. (laughs) 
And I really wanted to meet your dog, Maxwell, your Labrador, because I know he's really changed your life. Mm. I'm here on Walking the Dog with radio broadcaster, TV presenter and Five Life presenter, Nikki Campbell. Nikki, welcome. Thank you. Firstly, talk us through your dogs. Right. Well, I've got Maxwell, named after Gavin Maxwell, my favourite writer, writing about highlands and nature and otters, and also named after Maxwell Silverhammer, the Beatles song, but not named up because the kids all love that when they were young, but not named after Robert Maxwell, the press baron, not named after him. I want to emphasize that. And we've got Misty, who is uh, a West Highland Terrier who is nine years old, 10 years old, named after Misty May. Oh, what was her name? Misty May. We call her Misty May. She was Misty May Trainer, the greatest beach volleyball player of all time. Uh, not really, but I call her Misty May after Misty May, who I first encountered in the 2000 Sydney Olympics when I was working there for Five Live. Oh. And, and Maisie is her daughter, who is amazing Maisie. So I've got, and they're such characters, West Highland Terriers. But Maxwell is my friend and confidant and therapist on four legs. It was 12 years ago that he came into your life. And I just got the impression that you formed such an instant bond with him. Completely. And it took me back to my childhood just after I came into the house when I was adopted as a little baby. I came into my parents' house when I was um, um, three months old, I think, in Edinburgh. And they got a puppy at the same time. I think they got a puppy to kind of make my sister feel a bit better about stuff because I was getting all the attention. And Candy was my confrere my comrade my brother in arms for the first 11 years of my life and he brought me a great deal of happiness and security and friendship and safety I felt safe when I was with him he was a fox terrier cross and his mother was called Judy and she lived next door at number 103 terraced house in Edinburgh over the fence um, and she was a purebred fox terrier cross but she escaped one night and had wild abandon and came back pregnant they were very surprised when she came back pregnant a couple of days later remember those days dogs used to escape and wander around mm. and uh, dodge all the mini clubmans and morris miners of the streets of 1960s edinburgh where you can still smell the yeast of the breweries and women wore hats mm -hmm. and anyway she came back and was pregnant and so I think my, my sister's no, nose was a little bit out of joint so what they did dad said no over my dead body of my dead body we're not getting a dog and he went next door to have a look at the puppies that Judy had had uh, at the um the I remember the the academics my parents referred to them as the academics next door so the academics had a dog that had puppies and we got one of the puppies and the puppy was Candy and I didn't realise that he was a dog or I just thought we were together. We were, the, I didn't particularly occur to me that he was of a different species and we were with each other and loved each other for the first 11 years of my life. Everything we did together and we used to go around on all fours and sniff things together when the doorbell rang and friends arrived, we sniffed them. My parents were pretty embarrassed about that more <laughs> embarrassed on some occasions than others get down get down i was saying to both of us down down 
get that nikki get down candy get down um <laughs> so it's, uh, everyone needs to comment on it tell me a bit about your parents nikki because i really get the impression that you had a really lovely home actually growing up yeah it was a beautiful lovely home what i write about in the book are the the insecurities, the lifelong insecurities and feelings of rejection and abandonment um, of adoption. But I had a brilliant family. And I always say this, and I think it's important to say that um, my parents are my adoptive parents, but they're my real parents. And I had a blissfully happy home and it was so loved, but you, there was always that thing. I remember mm. when we went to see Dumbo when I was four years old in the cinema um where else people used to smoke in cinemas and then at one stage i'm i'm going off on a tangent here at one stage i had the the smoking side of the cinema and the non-smoking side of the cinema. what was the point it was like when planes <laughs> did that no, you're sitting right. one seat behind someone having 60 <laughs> cigarettes oh i but feel much fine. better about being a non-smoking with the fresh air oh that's right <laughs> I can glad. finally breathe in this seat. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not sitting two seats along. Um, <laughs> and uh, there was they played the national anthem at the end of every cinema, but I didn't hear the national anthem because I ran out of the cinema. I missed the national anthem when I was four years old. And it was when Dumbo's mother was separated from Dumbo and Dumbo was being bullied and his mother couldn't help him. Was that tricky for your mum to deal with? How did she deal with moments like that? Uh, Mum was a psychiatric social worker, so she was pretty good at dealing with moments like that. I remember she used to come home from work, and Dad was a publisher of maps. Um, he loved maps, he adored maps, and tried to get me interested in maps, but I don't have the map gene. I remember panicking once when we were driving, and Tina said, because I can't read maps, I have a kind of map dyslexia or whatever it is, I just don't get maps, uh, so I, you know... Nature, nurture. I'm sorry. As far as maps are concerned, it's it's nature. I remember Tina saying, oh, "Where are we? Where? Point to the road we're on." And in panic, I pointed out the window to the road that we were on because I no way could I find it on the map. <laughs> so you know, he was. So she was. Good. I remember she used to come home from work, and I was on the floor with candy on the carpet, as we always were. You know, with Blue Peter or whatever it was in the background. And dad and mum used to sit and she used to tell him about her day at work. And I used to hear the most extraordinary things. There was one man who, who um, his, his wife would only let him have sex with her when he'd had a, he'd bathed in Dettol. I remember that he said, and he had to be dabbed in Dettol all over. And I remember him, mum telling that to dad. I remember dad saying, what? Are you sure? But this was like run of the mill for mums. You had to deal with all these things on a daily basis. But it's quite impactful for a 10-year-old child to hear that, especially when I went up to the bathroom and saw some dental in the cupboard. But anyway, no, so they dealt with all that stuff well, brilliantly well, and, and told me from an early age, from as long as I knew that I was adopted. Um, but the big shuddering blow in my life was when I got home from school one day and uh, we'd just come back from the Highlands where we had been on a holiday. And the um, he kind of been in kennels because he, he he worried sheep. I didn't I didn't think there was a, it was probably I think I he slightly concerned them maybe, but I don't think there was a big problem. But my parents were like a lot of people's parents overreacted to things. Um, and so I got home from school one day and he I looked up and he didn't run down. He wasn't there in the room upstairs 
where I used to sit and watch the world go by. And I ran downstairs, ready to take him out for a walk and to greet him. And I've had that explosion of love and joy. And the mum was in the, in the hallway and said, um, she said, uh, uh, we had to put Candy to sleep. And I remember it as if it was yesterday. It's just dreadful, dreadful. What really occurred to me reading your book was that obviously dogs by their very nature are adopted themselves you know they they join our family and we make them part of our family so I found that even more kind of heartbreaking for you in a sense that that connection was also based on a sort of almost identifying with that ex that shared experience almost I think I did I think that's uh, acutely observed I think I did identify with that subconsciously and then later consciously um, we had come into the home and yeah, I think, I think that was a, I think that was a big thing. It was a big thing. Um, identifying with that, that adoption thing, not sort of, you feel incredibly loved, but you feel incredibly rejected and there's great um, solace in animals, great comfort. And they just seem to understand how you're feeling. And I also got the sense you talk a lot about feeling other. How did that manifest itself, this sense of otherness in you? Um, I think that I had this, this narrative that had been drawn up for me of my birth mother, which was to make me feel better and to make me understand adoption. Now, they weren't going to say, oh, your mother um, obviously had mental health issues and was a um, matron in a hospital and had two wild affairs and had two children born within 18 months of each other, both adopted in Edinburgh and with different fathers. And um, they weren't going to say that. So they, they kind of glossed it, but they didn't lie. They said she was uh, an amazing woman, uh, amazingly generous, and came over from Dublin and I grew in her tummy, but she couldn't look after me. And so we're your mommy and daddy now. And she was, in, she made sure that you were with a loving family and we're, we are family now forever. And she was very, very careful to put you with, um, with the right people. And it happened because my dad had a hangover and terrible hangover because my mom had had a series of miscarriages. Mm. And he went to his friend, Ronnie Cameron, who was our local GP. And he said, how are you, Frank? And he said, oh, it's bloody awful. I mean, Sheila's obviously it's very depressed because she's had five miscarriages now. And Ronnie said, oh, there's a woman who's over from Dublin at the practice, coming into the practice that I'm looking after, who is about to have a baby and is looking for a good home for the baby. And... So that's how it came about, thanks to dad's hangover. So I have that narrative. And so there's always that thing in your mind about who you might have been, who you should have been, who you once were, and who you're meant to be, and who you're not meant to be, what you deserve, what you don't deserve. Um, are you an imposter in your own life? There's always that thing. And having done Long Lost Family for Love News, I've spoken to a lot of people, and I've heard that voice. I've heard that reflected so many times. So that's how it manifested itself. And I was quite, sh I was quite shy. Um, I mean, I had my moments, but I was kind of hide behind mommy's legs a bit, certainly for the first, you know, 
eight or nine years, maybe maybe a bit longer. I'm always interested in shy people that become performers. Mm. Why do you think you became a performer? Well, I was always a bit, I always liked all that stuff. I always liked kind of impressing my parents, making them laugh. I used to love making them laugh and saying clever things and clever stuff. And when they laughed, it kind of, I felt good. I felt part of everything. I really, I really came into my own in that respect. Um, when I was a teenager and I was about 15 or 16 and I discovered that you could phone in radio stations and get on the air on phone-ins. That's when I sort of came into my own and my self-esteem built up a lot then. And then I, there was a, I was on everything. I was not as myself, you know, as an imposter, as somebody else. But I used to, um, there was this, uh, this current affairs program called Dial Webster on a Sunday morning. And I'd, I'd phone up and I'd, maybe they'd take 10 calls throughout the program. And I, I was eight of them with doing different characters, <laughs> being different people. Oh, it's Nikki Campbell again. But- no, it's the vet advising on rabies, or it's the woman from Morningside whose life had been destroyed by vandals. It's the self-confessed vandal. It's the social worker bemoaning the lack of community centres. It's this. It's a, it's a man who thinks that the French president Giscard d'Estaing's visit to Edinburgh is an absolute disgrace uh, because uh, the common market is a racket. And it's the it's this. So I, lo- I just love doing it, and I love the fact that they thought I was real. But I loved radio and to be able to go on the radio and, and pull a fast one and be people and just push it to the limit, <laughs> push it to the limit. And it's because we used to tape it and then my friends got on board with it. And so we really wiped the board with it on all their phone-ins. And so my Ian Glenn, who's in Game of Thrones, who's one of my mates, he got on board and Robert Harley, who wrote Smack the Pony. He was another one of my school friends. He was a very clever guy. He got on board. And so what I'd do is I was kind of leading the charge. And it was very good for self, my self-esteem. made me feel good because at school, we'd play the cassette at break time and people were kind of hanging out on the Monday after the Sunday's phone-in. So people were hanging out of the, you know, like a, one, of those rain, one of those train carriages, hanging off the roof and listening. Everyone was packed in and piled in and listening through the windows. And so I've that was my career in radio. It's quite ironic. I do phone-ins now. That's how I fell in love with the whole thing and the thrill of it, which I feel all, which I feel now yeah. speaking to Mike, to you. I love it. I suppose that makes me feel, you know, really happy for you that you found that though, because also it was something that you. Hang on a second. Hang on a second. What? I'm doing a podcast. God, <laughs> honestly. Come what here, was do that? that? Was that your wife, Tina? She's very angry with me because I didn't clear the dog mess out in the garden earlier on. I've got an exercise bike and I went straight to the exercise bike this morning in the little shed at the side of the kitchen. And it's a, it's not a very expansive garden. There's a, there's a bit of grass and there's a bit of concrete and there were part, three piles on the concrete and I walked past them like I was going through a minefield. But, <laughs> but I, didn't, I didn't pick them up. And I came in. Is that in, your I, job doing the dog poo? No, it's all hands to the pump. <laughs> <laughs> and I, sh- I should have picked it up. And so I haven't heard the end of it today. And I've heard, this is not sustainable. You must pick it. I said, well, I, it was ti- I was tired. I was working all day yesterday. So that, I think there's a bit of a vestige of that still going on. That's why she's <laughs> calling me. You know, but you know, marriage is all about ups and downs. And uh, it's not a serious down, but it's been going on all day. 
We were talking about radio and performing and I said, I was really happy for you that you found that. I just get this sense of you not belonging. And to me, that means not feeling safe, that no matter how much love your parents threw at you, and they obviously threw a great deal of it in security and stability and constancy, you couldn't feel safe. No, no, I never, I never really felt safe. Candy made me feel safe. My dog Candy made me feel very safe. There's always that lingering lifelong thing. I've, I've spoken to so many people on Long Lost Family who've said the same thing. And when you come to the trace, tracing thing, you feel guilty that you've done it um, and you feel disloyal, but you feel in your heart of hearts that you have to do it because you have to know where you came from and who you are or who you might have been or who mm. you were meant to be. And so you feel it's like guilty about everything and that, that never leaves you but you know that you had to do it, but then you think, did I have to do it? So that is, so you're kind of torn apart by the whole thing. And um, it's, I had so many things, I had so many over the years, so many people on Long Lost Family say things that I identified with. And people who come on Long Lost Family say that, you know, we've really helped them and transformed their lives. And Long Lost Family really transformed my life because it made me think so long and hard about all those, all those things and allowed me to refocus on meeting my birth mother and work out why it hadn't worked out. The first thing my birth mother said to me when we met in 1989 or 1990 was um, she, she was, she was two hours late and she was, you know, had a chaotic life and she wasn't, she didn't float into the hotel vestibule um, like I thought she would because she was such an amazing, generous, saintly woman who couldn't look after me. So gave me to somebody else and made sure I had the best family in the world she was chaotic she's had a chaotic life and she came in she sat down and she was all over the place and she, we sort of said hello and then we settled into our seats and she said um do you like dogs and I thought at the time oh, bizarre and I do love dogs I did love dogs I've got a lifelong love affair with dogs I feel happy with dogs if I see a dog I want to get down on the carpet with it like I got down in the carpet with candy I've crossed the road to see dogs. I've gone on motorcycles on 150 mile journeys because I haven't had a dog handy. So I've gone to see my sister to see her dog. And I didn't think about it at the time because I was consumed with all sorts of other things in my mind of nerves and sense of identity and belonging and looking at somebody genetically related to me for the first time. And when I reconsidered everything later on in the light of my own breakdown and my own savior on four legs and my own love of animals it kind of fitted into place she didn't say much but she didn't say much that was of any depth but because of the life she'd had it had all been sucked out of her and bashed out of her but there was great depth there and you, you could see it sometimes and i think it's a brilliant question i think it's a brilliant question mm. do you like dogs it was a brilliant question because I don't understand anyone that doesn't like dogs. And it's, a, it's, an, it's an empathy test. It's a flow test of empathy. It's um, a surefire test of empathy. I would agree with you. And I always feel when people reject the concept of dogs, I think they're sort of slightly rejecting their inner child. I almost feel that some people are, are frightened to make that, that connection. Yeah, you're so in the moment. 
there's no future and no past when you're with a dog. You're so taken up with that connection with an animal. You know, when you said that, did you hear a little ping in the background? Yeah, what was that? Was that your it, phone? No, it was the angels saying, spot on what you said. <laughs> That's what it was. The other thing is, it's not just connected I love that with... the angels can text me now. This is good news. <laughs> Great they've caught up with technology, Nikki. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's not just connecting with your inner child. It's connecting with the outer world, the world beyond ourselves. It's the world within and it's the world beyond. Because this is an animal who's which has been domesticated over the last 25,000 years. Mm. Descended from the the wild wolf, a wolf-like creature um, in an extraordinary process of domestication, which is fascinating in itself. And if you can see the dog, you see little hints, little vestiges of the wild, that the wolf in your living room, that famous thing. And it's an animal that's, you know, that's far closer to the wild than we are, or, or certainly we, we think we are. And if you see a dog and if you love a dog, you're loving an animal and you should see beyond ourselves to all animals because a dog gives us a, a little chance to glimpse into the forest to see what we are, the apes that we are in reality. So it's looking outward and beyond and it's looking inward and within. I was interested, you were talking earlier about how you met your birth mother and she was pretty late, wasn't she? And I got the sense that obviously you were very stressed out by that and punctuality is really important to you mm. I made the connection there of you've been waiting for someone to kind of show up all your life really yeah yeah I think yeah I think that's a point um, and she wasn't there and she was two or three hours late yeah when she did come and she said do you like dogs we spoke about a dog she told me about a dog called Toby when she was in the boarding house in, in Portobello in Edinburgh having me she, and then I was born and we were together for nine days and then the woman in the car came to take me away and she was inconsolable as I later found out and expectedly and uh, there was a little dog called Toby who was I think a, a collie a little collie cross who was in there under the bed guarding me guarding me for nine days and if anyone came in or got came near me he growled and he was jumping up beside me i think that even though she was a, she was a matron in a hospital i think in that situation she was less than fastidious about about cleanliness because maybe the, there were the three of us in there mm-hmm. and we were we were in there together and I, I just well so when i got home and then candy arrived the dog from next door i do think there was something that was familiar to me about candy and when I had my breakdown, which I write about, and my diagnosis is bipolar, I, I, um, I went to the psychiatrist. I was very lucky to be able to get seek a psychiatrist. It was a terrible time. I think it's far easier to write about than it is to talk about. Why is that? Because I'm, I have to express it and go through it in my mind. But you're in a kind of, and there's people, I, I don't know. Very good question. I just think that when you write, you're in a little bubble. I'm not in a bubble right now, am I? Um, and I went to the psychiatrist and I said, is there any, that first nine days with Toby? Because she, do you like dogs? And she said, and then she talked about Toby, this little dog. 
And he said, absolutely, imprint. It's so important, those first, those imprint in the smells and the feelings of those first few days. And so I came into the world and there were dogs. There was a little dog there for me already. Then I went home after three months to my forever home. There was a dog there for me. And there's a dog here for me now, Maxwell. What was it like, Nikki, when you first became famous? Because it feels to me like that was quite a quick process for you in your 20s after you left university. I think it, it was quite quick. Yes, I was, I was sort of quite driven and obviously quite, quite manic. Didn't realise why I was manic and then sort of the ups and the downs and the ups and the downs. I was on commercial radio. I left my graduation lunch to go and finish some jingles on commercial radio. I was already working on North Sound Radio in Aberdeen. And then I did that for a bit. Then I sent a tape to Capital Radio and they asked me to come down and do some depths. And I got a show on Capital Radio working with... Uh, my first ch- my first changeover was with Kenny Everett. I was doing a Saturday afternoon show, my very first show. And I had to walk around the block four times before I could summon up the courage to walk in. And do you remember the Capitol building on Euston Road? I the, do. The yeah. So I went around the block. By, there was the hotel there and there's Warren Street. And I went round and round that block. And Kenneth Williams used to, used to, um, he used to walk up and down all the time. And um, uh, and so I, w- I, so I went in and then the man said, come up and do a, a changeover with uh, Kenny Everett. I'm like, I mean, goodness me, can you imagine? And so I went up the stairs into the studio because he was on before me. And uh, I said, uh, he said, what's your name? I said, Nicky Campbell said, don't be too good. I shall have you garroted and dragged down Euston Road. And I was thinking, he was, oh, it was great. You know, and when, I, when I was walking down Euston Road all those years later, about to implode, um, I did think afterwards that it had come to pass. <laughs> I was, because then I collapsed outside Euston Station uh, in, in a heap of sort of misery and confusion. But then I, I later thought about it, but maybe it was Kenny dragging me down Euston Road. <laughs> well, I was sat there. Can you imagine how terrifying it? I was sat there in a studio here, like here, microphone just across, not a very big studio there at Capital Radio, lots of carts and records and all sorts. Of, and then all of a sudden I'm in there and Kenny Everett's looking at me. And then I'm downstairs and I'm about to do the show. That's about quarter to two. So I go downstairs and the show's at two and I go and get my things. Then Alan Freeman comes up to me and says, um, are you nervous? I said, yes, I am a bit. He said, good, because if you're not nervous, you won't be any good, not off. And then, um, and so, and that's so right. So true, isn't it? If you're not nervous, you won't be any good. You just came across always as so unusually sort of confident, sort of charming, handsome, controlled. Were you sort of faking it till you made it essentially? Well, I think I was trying too hard, certainly. And I was propelled into a very bizarre situation all of a sudden, Radio 1. It was like stepping into um, Jurassic Park (laughs) um, in many ways. Um, All those people there, um, that's another story. But, but but, you know, they they all came off the pirate ships. And so it was stretching into another era and it was bizarre. So part, so part of you's there in it and the other part of you's observing it mm. all the time. Um, and so, yeah, and then I think, I mean, I look back now because they play Top of the Pops on a Friday night on BBC Four and they play, 
play the Wheel of Fortune on Challenge TV. The ghosts of Christmas past for me. <laughs> you know, clang, clang, <laughs> clang. There they are. I mean, great. I mean, I, but I, I get the text on a Friday night, so I know I'm on and I know I'm in it. And I get these texts of bizarre hair and shirts. And people say, oh, you get that. Look at that. You're a bit young and so is it? And I always get the one saying, I hated you then. I hated you now. I said, well, thanks for getting in touch. You know, that's social media. You know, <laughs> <laughs> thanks for reaching out. Uh, <laughs> it's nice of you. And, uh, but then I kind of I look at it and I, I see kind of someone sort of being very manic and trying too hard and not being terribly relaxed. And I can absolutely identify with my ups and my downs. And I can see it's like watching some other, I know anyone would say that about watching themselves for 30 years ago, but in the light of a diagnosis of bipolar, I can, I think I can see stuff. Really? Mm. I know you were diagnosed. Um, it wasn't all that long ago, was it? 2009. Right. And you had this episode, as you say, and you just, it felt like everything just became overwhelming. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to save every single animal in the world and I want to pick, pick up every bit of litter in the world. I just, um, I would spend hours and hours looking at animals and trying to raise it on, on, online, uh, you know, being exploited. And I went into that world and because I adore animals so much uh, and see what we're destroying. And it became all consuming and all sorts of other things and fixations and obsessions and damaging behavior and all that stuff. And it's all, all my life, I've been sort of prone to obsessions and fixations and highs and lows. The highs are very useful if you're doing quick fire TV or, or, or radio and all, all that sort of stuff. But um, it did. And I walked down Euston Road. I was uh, garroted and dragged down Euston Road. And, uh, and I got to the station and I just collapsed at sobbing. Um, it's very difficult to talk about still, but, uh, and I've written about it and I've been talking about it quite a lot, you know, when, as I've been talking about the book. So I think it's important to, because so many people suffer from things. And I think if you are in a position that it's, it's, it's not, it's not a duty to do it as a slab. It's not, it's not a sort of a moral imperative. It's an opportunity. It's mm. a good opportunity to do it and to have people listen to you because you're on a camera or you're on a microphone. I know I, was, I just dropped to my feet sobbing and sobbing and sobbing and I really thought I couldn't go on anymore. And I, um, and I rang home and uh, I, I said, to t and I'm, I was just thinking, I'm on the ground and I'm like in my hand, sobbing in my hands. <laughs> I'm sick of it. I, I wouldn't be surprised if a guy had gone past and said, I didn't like you then and I don't like you now. But anyway, that's just to make light of the situation. <laughs> Thanks for helping me. Um, so anyway, I rang home and I said to Tina uh, what was going on. And she said, come home, come home now. Just get in a taxi and come home now. Because I was heading up to um, Salford where we do uh, Five Live. And she said, get in a taxi, come home now. And come and see, come and see me, come and see the girls and come and see Maxwell. And she knew how much Maxwell meant to me. And I just thought, yeah. And I got home and my lovely family were there, but they were saying, what's wrong? How, how are you? How are you feeling? What happened? Um, what's, what's going on? What, what, what led to it? And so but by merely answering those questions, I was in those moments again. So mm. I, was, I was feeling all that stuff again. So I didn't want to talk. I just wanted to just dissolve. And so I went upstairs and I lay on the bed. And the next thing I knew was I had a jump on the bed and um, 
he lay down beside me and he, you know, Labradors do it, dogs do it, but Labradors, I think, I don't know, all dogs do, but I know when Labradors do it, it's lovely because all bigger dogs, because you can really feel the weight and warmth of their head. And he put his head right on my chest, touching my chin and, and his paw on me. And I know, I know he was trying to help me. I, I absolutely know he was because they just know and I know that he knew. Oh, that's making me cry. <laughs> that's so lovely. That's so lovely. And I'm so, I think it's really good that you are talking about it. And I appreciate it's difficult because it's only by being utterly truthful that you really connect with people, you know, and I think that's what's happening with you now. People are saying, I felt that and I relate to that. Because also there's, I don't know much about bipolar and and hearing your story, it's it's helpful in the same way that I'm sure for your family, because I know you've got four daughters now, and it's is it something where you've had to sort of educate them and it's been a joint education for you all about how best to to deal with it just on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, and they're all intelligent people and they get it. And you know, there's I've I've got a um I've got I've got a daughter who has, you know, we I mean, um, you know, none of us are it's so common. It's so I mean, mental health problems are so common. And I got it from Stella. That sounds very brutal. I got it from, but um, your adopted people are always looking for links. And I um, realized when I was diagnosed and then the psychiatrist said, is anyone, well, he said right at the beginning, is there anyone in the family with um, uh, mental health? And I said, no, not really. No. And then, and then he said that later on, I, I, after a few weeks, I was lucky enough to be able to speak to him for a long time to get properly diagnosed. And he said, you're, you're bipolar type two. Are you sure there's no one in the family with bipolar type two? And the guy said, uh, no. I'd, oh, yeah, 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 my birth mother. And he said, well, it's, it's hereditary, but can be mitigated by environment so that it doesn't manifest itself quite so severely. Mm. And... Um, it wasn't, it's a, it's a legacy and it's not a good legacy. It's not a bad legacy, but it's meaningful because it, it connects me with her and it makes me understand her so much more to, to think about it, to think about the wildness that, and, and the abandon and the lack of responsibility and the absolutely living for those, for those moments and not thinking about consequences. So I, I, I do understand all that. And, you know, my girls have been, I mean, when I was, just randomly bursting into tears um i could see their hearts aching but i wrote this book one of the family um kirsty who is uh, dyslexic and has a uh, adhd adhd ad what is it adhd i have it so i know do you <laughs> i found it like the a missing answer it was like a quest my whole life why am i a bit like this you know, and I'm sure I hope you felt similarly. I got the feeling you did that it's so great when I hear about kids being diagnosed in childhood. Yeah. I think that's so great, you know, yeah. or younger. Kirsty, who has that thing, she read it, she was the first to read it, and she is 19 years old and she she read it and then she sat on Tina, my wife's knee, like a little girl, downstairs on the sofa and cried. And she said, you know, I understand so much now about daddy and also there's things in there, not, you know, f- feeling 
you know, like I, like I don't belong, that I kind of a lot of people feel. So you were asking, why am I feeling like this? And why am I doing this? And what, what's going on in my mind? And so why did you seek diagnosis? Because you're right, when you get diagnosis, it's like, it's not like, uh, whoopee, yes, I'm bipolar type two, whoa. But it's <laughs> result back in the net no it's not that it's it's thank goodness there i it is a thing the thing that i am yeah. is a thing mm. you know the thing the way that i behave the way that i think the way that the things that's caused me problems and the, the highs and the lows it's th that is what it is did you feel mm. that i felt that i'd go around sort of trying to cover it up because i knew there was something off about it that made me different and then as soon as i got diagnosed properly i just felt oh, okay, I'm not, I just have a thing. That's okay. I can handle a thing. That sort of explains why I behave like this. So I was, I was so happy. I mean, I was, I'm not, I'm not saying congratulations. It's such great news about the bipolar, but I'm just, um, I'm pleased for you that I think it brings peace is what I think it, it brings and solutions, you know. Um, I want to ask you about Tina, your wife, because I've got to be honest, I think I kind of want to marry her. Well, she has um, seen it all and helped me through it uh, in an incredible way. I can't talk about it without getting obviously very emotional, but uh, she's, you know, when I was, I went on to the common one day, this is an example, and picked up a whole pile of litter and because I was on a crew, uh, uh, um, I was on a mission and I picked up this and all these receipts and, and off license and shops and stuff like that. And I went home and I'd hunted, I, she came back and I had receipts all over the table and I was looking for clues as, as to where they'd been bought and what time they'd been bought. And I was writing it all down in a, in a notepaper and trying to work it out. And so I could then call the police and so, and get these people arrested for dropping litter on the common. I feel that, I mean, it's a noble cause, right? Uh, you know, protecting animals and whatever. It's, they, these are noble causes. Uh, and I feel very strong about both, but it was to, to just this extreme position, which I take things. And was that, that's the bipolar, that's a mania. Yeah. yeah. And then she, I mean, she came in and she was like, I mean, she has such, um, she has warmth and empathy and kindness and, and understanding. And, and she just said, look, you know, she, she, she was able to talk me down, you know, and said, look, you know, honestly, it's fine. You know, it's terrible, the litter, but I don't, you know, I don't think that, I don't think that police are going to be interested in me, you know, and all oh, right, aren't they? No, but I, 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 I've got numb. No, honestly, let's come over here. Let's sit down. Uh, let's have a drink or whatever, or let's have a cup of tea. And so she was very good at managing it and, and handling it. And uh, goodness only knows where I'd be without her. Goodness only knows. Your family seems to me like the dream dog family that everyone would want to be in. They are, I mean, I'm, you know, population of the globe is not, is not good the way it's exponentially expanding. And I've got four daughters and there is a, but I've got four environmentalists, you know, so I've got four animal-loving environmentalists who want to do something about saving the planet. So that's that's my um, that's my argument. That's my mea non culpa. 
But uh, you know they're incredible, and we those we love our dogs. We absolutely adore our dogs, uh, all of them, because we've got the three dogs, and they're all such characters, and they are the most loved dogs, because we're all animal crazy and and dog crazy, and home is a lovely place to be. Oh, I'm so, that's such a lovely thing to hear you say that, because I think you've had quite a journey, and to sorry to sound a bit Simon Cowell, but you know what I mean by that. Um, I feel also. Not, do I know what you mean by that? A thousand yeah, percent. Because. <laughs> like Simon Cowell again. <laughs> Did you feel with your birth home? I felt you got a bit of closure over that finally, didn't you? After looking through the letters that she'd sent you. Which I'd never opened because I'd, I'd sort of pulled out of the situation. Oh, it was just the phone calls were going for hours. She wanted to be my mum and she wasn't my mum. She wasn't my mummy. She wasn't my mum. She wasn't my mother. She gave birth to me. She was my birth mother. And the, you know, the hour-long phone calls talk about nothing. The, 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 I suppose the manic cascade of vacuity. And I just couldn't relate and I couldn't connect. But as I found things out about her and as I realized stuff later on, as a, a doing long-lost family, meeting birth mothers, meeting birth mothers in all sorts of different situations and speaking to people over the last 11 years on that incredible phenomenon that it is, that it, it gave me an understanding and I remembered things. I remember things that she said. I remember her saying, do you like dogs? And I knew how much that meant, how much that meant in a very profound way and I remember I read the letters and I saw certain things in the letters that let me in as well. And I remembered a poem that she spoke about when we first met. The, um, the Wild Swans at Cool by W.B. Yeats. And it's about 59 swans. And she said just right in the first five, 10 minutes, I said, well, what are you interested in? She said, I'm in, I, well, I like poetry. I'm interested in literature. And I, 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 I love the Wild Swans at Cool by W.B. Yeats. Do you know it? I, I didn't know it. And I've even got around to, I love, I like Yeats. You know, I love, I love that poem, The Second Coming. The, the, the best have no conviction and the worst are full of passionate intensity. Is it that way around? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so I read this poem as I sat there reading the letters. I Googled the poem very crudely. I Googled Yeats and I read this poem. And it was like a message from the past because this poem was about the wild swans are cool. And it was about 59 swans. And I looked into it and one of the swans had flown. One of the swans had gone. One of the swans had disappeared forever. There were 59. And I do think that whatever her problems and travails and mental health battles and inability to think about the past, speak about the past or exercise any level of analysis about anything, I think that was pretty bloody amazing to mention that poem and the swan that was gone forever. That must have been really moving when you made the connection. It really, really was. Mm. I often ask people when they last cried, but I don't really feel I need to ask you that because I feel you're a man who doesn't really have problems expressing emotions, honestly. Here's a, an answer you probably never had. Um, as a guest on Sunday brunch... Was the food that bad? That was great. <laughs> and Tim and Simon were fantastic. But I was doing the rounds talking about the book. And I'm very fortunate to be in a situation to have been able to write it because it's been for me and it's been, 
I just love it when people who are adopt. Everyone's got an amazing story. When it, mm. I've loved over long lost family, adopted people saying that's how I feel. Those are all the twists and turns and conflicts and contradictions that I have. And I love when people connect over animals and dogs. And I love it when people say, and they have done. Thank you very much for talking about that mental health thing. It's we've got to. As the more talk about it, the better. And I love that. I love when when people do. And I was talking. Tim and Simon were interviewing me on on Sunday brunch, and I was talking about the breakdown and I didn't like weep, but I had a uh, moment. Mm. Yeah. But I know I cry all the time. Yeah. I cry all the time. If you're with friends and they close the door and they were talking about you, what do you hope they'd be saying about you? Um, that I was caring and, um, sensitive and emotionally intelligent cared for other people and that we had a great laugh and i was bloody funny and good, good company. <laughs> <laughs> i have my moments do you have a temper nikki no not really no when did i lost lose my temper um oh i mean somebody the other day said it was about Tina in the book and somebody said she who's interviewing it was Ranveer Singh actually who was standing in for Lorraine sitting mm. in for Lorraine who's a, a brilliant woman brilliant journalist she texted me afterwards and she said reading a book Tina sounds like an angel and I said um mm. uh yeah she is <laughs> she's a shouty angel <laughs> Did, Tina sounds like an angel. Feel like there was an ellipsis saying "putting up with you." <laughs> yeah, no, there is that, but no, <laughs> it's just. And I think it was the dog mess earlier on. And she said, "This is not sustained. This is the last time." And it was only a, losing my temper in a tiny way. And she said, "Oh, hello, um, that's that? amazing." So that's a Sunday Times bestseller. Yeah, <gasps> we're at number three on the Sunday Times nonfiction bestseller list. This is Tina. Tina, I'm Emily. Really nice to meet you. This Emily, is Raymond. Yeah. Thank you, Emily. I just thought I'd bring this happy news up. Gorgeous dog. Emily was saying you, you sat, she wants to marry you. You sound like an angel. <laughs> and I was no. saying, back to the angel. I'm shouting. I am shouting. You have a lovely When was the last dog, time Emily? I lost my temper? About 10 minutes ago. Was it the, the dog? It was the dog feeding row we had. Oh, it was the dog feeding row. Yeah. You've got to feed the dogs now. It's 10 to 3. I've got to get, I'm speaking to Emily at 3. Feed the dogs. I can't. I can't feed the dogs. I'm doing a podcast. I don't care about your bloody podcast. I'm busy. Feed the dogs. One of those. That was one it. of those. Are us. I've yeah. got his his editor on the phone as well. So, um, ring Gillian later. Lovely to meet you, Emily. See you, Tina. Bye. Oh, she's great, isn't she? <laughs> <laughs> I only met her because the newsreader Richard Evans, who's a friend of ours, was what, broke his leg on holiday. Hmm. And Tina stood in to read the news. She used to work from Newsbeat. She reads the news on Radio 4 now and does continuity. I used to listen to Tina on Chris Evans years Chris ago. Chris Evans. She was Chris yeah. Evans' newsreader. And she walked into the studio and I just thought, obviously I was attracted to her because that's how it works. But also when we, when we met, I just got on with her so well and we became friends and she's my best friend as well. Isn't that great? Isn't that great that she's my best friend? And you've got Maxwell and the uh, Westies. Yeah, and the girls, and it's all good. And I'm, I'm, I'm 
I'm very pleased to be number three on the Sunday Times nonfiction bestseller list. But even better than that, I'm pleased that I've had messages from people on Instagram. Thank you very much. You've, you've, that's how I feel. Really? That, that's, that's amazing. It is when people say that. When you make yourself vulnerable, you realize that there is a sort of power in that, isn't there? That just even if one person gets in touch and says, I read this and I feel so much better about yeah. my life, you've helped yeah. me. Amazing. And it, um, and it's not, I hope it's not, doesn't sound sanctimonious, but I just think it's, it's, it's great to be able to connect to people like that. That's what broadcasting is, you know, isn't it? You're connecting to people. It's like a late night radio thing with the, I talk about with the desk lamp and the smoke swirling around the studio and you're just like talking to one person. It's about making connections to people. And if you can make connections to people and it's the best feeling in the world when I had it doing long lost families saying, thank you, you know, that's how I felt. Uh, but to doing this and to say, thank you very much for so Somebody says, thank you very much for helping to explain my life. Mm. That's incredible. I've never really known the answer to this. And, I, and I'm just going to ask you, because I think you should always ask people who've experienced things. I know in my family, my cousins were adopted and I would dread those moments when a grandparent or whatever would say, oh, Emily's just like X, Y, Z. And there'd be a mention of genes and family traits and there'd be a silence and everyone would rush to fill in the silence and change the subject. How, how should people have dealt with that? It is difficult, especially if you don't want other people to know, because if other people know and comment on it, you feel inauthentic. Mm. I had a big panic at school when we were in a shop, British home stores after school. My friend Robert was there with me and he was coming back to ours because his parents were away. One of those coming to ask for tea and he said to me um why he's very clever he, he i mentioned him earlier on he's a very com comedy writer green wing smack the pony his his him and his wife uh, produce and write those that stuff and um and he said why are your eyes blue and I, th I thought oh my god he's on to me this and i thought i'd been rumbled and I really panicked. I can remember that panic now. It must have been about 14. And it was like my, my whole world was falling through my stomach. Um, I, and, you know, you get that, you go cold inside. Um, and then, I don't know, a couple of minutes, I said, why, 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 why? In the neon lit store, standing by the pick and mix. And he said, it's because... They have, I can't remember. Blue eyes have more melatonin or melamine and melamine and one of those things. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I learned it in biology today. He's in the top set. I wasn't. And I just thought it was interesting. So all he was doing was showing off his knowledge of biology. But I thought he was pointing a finger at me and saying, I'm onto you, even though he's my best friend. Because you just saw traps lurking around every corner because you lived your life a bit like the talent of Mr. Ripley. Well, like a psychopathic mass murderer. <laughs> I, I saw David Tennant playing Dennis Nielsen, right? And I thought, that's, <laughs> that's me. Yeah, that's me. You need to go and look at, find Maxwell now. Do you, want, because, do you want him? Does he sleep on the bed, Nikki? 
Uh, well, he does now because I have to get up, I, I have to get up first thing in the morning, and so during the week I sleep in the spare room because I have to get up at quarter past four, and he sleeps um, uh, on the bed. Yeah, yeah. It's something very soothing about a dog snoring, isn't there? You wouldn't put up with it in a human being. <laughs> same sound. I love not- dogs on the bed. Some people say no dogs on the bed. Um, no, dogs on the bed. Dogs on the sofa. Dogs on the chairs. Dog's dog, and he's thirteen nearly. He can do whatever he wants. <laughs> you know, he's given us so much happiness, and we've given him a good life. And I'm going to give him the best last year, two years, however much that I possibly can, because he has done so much for me, and he is amazing, and I love him with all my heart. So, you know, he can go up on the fucking bed as, lo- as much as he likes. I want to come and meet Maxwell. I'm really sad I didn't get to meet you in real life, but you know, I have ways. I'm going to come and come and I might be standing outside your house later. That's all I'm saying. Well, you'd be very welcome. Um, and we'll be able to go for a walk soon, won't we? It's be, you've been, I, I've so enjoyed talking to you. You've asked some fantastic questions and you've made me feel very comfortable. Uh, I think we have a connection because you've got your own thing going on there which is so interesting i'd like to interview you sometime maybe come on my podcast it's called one of the family as well and it's a kind of doggy thing there's people all that stuff and i do like for example the one i'm making at the moment i'm going to do the connection between dogs and children and i've got an interview with robbie savage i might use for it as well Mm. and then i've got i've speak to lorraine kelly on the one that's going out very soon but i've also got a feature on um pet theft speaking to somebody whose dog was stolen and they did actually manage to have a reunion six years later fern the dog and also speaking to daniel allen who's leading the case for pet theft reform leading the charge to get it tightened so i do kind of stuff like that as well i mean ricky gervais being on it and deborah meaden and all sorts of things but i like to do stuff stuff on it too i've done the dog meat trade i've done everything you wanted to know about dogs with alexandra horovitz who's the world's expert on dog cognition dog evolution and i've you know done gary lineker on losing his dog so there's a lot i throw lots of stuff in and, and i write all the music for it as well which i love doing as well i write everyone a different theme every week lorraine this week i've written i've written a generic breakfast tv theme what would your theme be like nikki um i like a bit of swing yes but i, can I see like that. to swing one way and swing the other but that's bipolar <laughs> right <laughs> I'm so thrilled to have met you, Nikki. I'm going to come round. I'm going to steal Tina and I'm going to steal the dog. Um, will you? I'm just going to grab Ray. Well, don't steal the dog because of this feature I'm doing on pet theft, you know, <laughs> is not good. To, if you steal my dog, because it is, Frank, you know what? If you steal my dog, it's tantamount to stealing a mobile phone or a computer or a television. So it's been a lovely interview, but I think don't go and spoil it all by coming and stealing my dog. <laughs> Would you, you say know? goodbye to Raymond, Nikki? I've heard your book is terrible. This has been a terrible interview. You've, it's been a complete waste. Of, Raymond! Raymond! Raymond's lovely. I'll give you that. <laughs> I really hope you enjoyed listening to that. And do remember to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. <laughs>